I'm going to direct your attention to the back middle portion of your worship guide, uh, where you'll find the scripture on which the sermon is based. If you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn to it. It's in Matthew chapter 24, a short passage just to give us some context, and then we're reading a longer parable that's in Matthew chapter 25. This is, of course, the second Sunday of the four-week season of Advent. The word Advent, it comes from a Latin word, which means coming or arrival. It's the season where the Christian church meditates on the two Advents of Christ. The two Advents of Christ, both his first Advent and his second Advent. Now, for most of us, the whole Christmas preseason uh, is, is primarily focused on Jesus' first Advent, the Son of God taking on flesh and dwelling amongst us. And, and this focus that the church has had on Christmas, on Jesus' coming as a baby in Bethlehem, is a good focus to have. It, it, it's excellent because the first advent of Jesus is good news for the world. Uh, good news that is of great joy for all the people. We're right to be excited, to celebrate every year, to make a big deal of Jesus' first advent. Because in Christ, we celebrate together that God has come to rescue us. That he has sent a Savior who is Christ the Lord. But the church also, for a long part of her history, has taken the advent season to focus not just on Christ's first advent, but also on his second advent. Our advent sermon series this year is about the good news of Christ's second advent, his second coming. Uh, that, that when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead, this is something that the church is called to celebrate too, to look forward to with eager anticipation and excitement. We're looking at the parables that Jesus spoke in Matthew chapters 24 and 25, part of what's known as the Olivet Discourse. This is where his disciples asked him, if you look at verse 3 of chapter 24, about the signs and the coming, the timing of his arrival. In, in, uh, in Greek, this is the word parousia. It's a very well-known word. It also means, of course, coming or arrival. In last week's sermon, I tried to make the case that the Olivet Discourse is primarily focused on Jesus' upcoming judgment on the city and nation uh, that Jerusalem is in. In 70 AD, history tells us some 40 years after Jesus spoke these words, the Roman armies marched into Judea, overtook it city by city, they besieged the holy city of Jerusalem, overcame its defenses, killed over a million people who were hidden behind its walls, and then tore down the temple brick by brick. What's happening in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25 is Jesus is prophesying that this is about to happen, that God's coming, his arrival, his judgment on this city is just around the corner. And Jesus is telling his listeners in the first century to wait for it, to watch for it, to be prepared for this arrival. And in the same way, you and I, we live in a period of waiting and watching, of anticipating an even greater coming, an even greater judgment, a judgment that the judgment of Jerusalem in 70 AD was only a foreshadowing of. We look forward to Christ's second coming, his second advent. See, Christ has promised, as we say in the creed every week, he's, come to, he's coming to judge the living and the dead, not just in one city but, or one nation, but for the entire world. And so this parable that we're about to read in Matthew 25 is one that Jesus gives his church as they watch and wait for his second arrival. Our reading this morning is Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 3, and then Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. 
Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins, who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore. For you know neither the day nor the hour. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father, would you make us ready for your Son's second advent? For those who are sleepy, wake us. For those who aren't paying attention, draw us to you. For those who are indifferent, gravely worn. Father, we thank you that you're here, that you are not silent. So speak to us now by the power of your spirit through your word, which we've just heard. In Christ's name, amen. The Victorian poet Christina Rossetti ends her famous poem, Advent Sunday, by evoking the language of the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, which we've just read from. This is how this poem, it's beautiful, you should look it up, this is how it ends. Behold the bridegroom cometh, go we out, with lamps ablaze and garlands round about, to meet him in a rapture with a shout. The phrase, behold the bridegroom cometh, from verse 6, as the King James Version translates it, that line from this parable is perhaps the very best expression that we have as a church to understand what our posture ought to be, what the quality of our readiness should be as we await Christ's second advent. If you want to see Christ's second advent rightly, you need to understand this phrase, behold, the bridegroom cometh. Jesus himself gives us the main idea from the parable that he just shared. It's the main idea, therefore, of the sermon. If you look at verse 13, it's this. After he tells the sermon, he says, Listen, we must watch, therefore, because we do not know the day nor the hour of Christ's arrival. The bridegroom, the groom, as we would say, cometh. But we must watch, 
because we don't know the day or the hour of his coming. Jesus' parable here depicts a common enough scene for people who were living in the first century. His ancient listeners would have understood it very well. The excitement and the preparations that go into a wedding day. A wedding celebration back then was a big deal just as it is today. But there were, of course, different cultural customs that were different then. Um, In ancient uh, Jewish custom, weddings went like this. The groom and his friends would leave the groom's house, typically at nighttime. Perhaps it was a newly built house that he had been preparing for some time for his wife and their new life together. And they would leave that home, and they would go to wherever the home of the bride-to-be was. And it was in that home, the home of the bride, where the marriage ceremony would take place. Along with the marriage ceremony, though, there was various legal and cultural uh, requirements that needed to first be fulfilled. And so this, this whole ceremony in the bride's home could actually take some time. Weddings were nighttime affairs, so things could go pretty late. But once everything was done, the new bride and her groom would march through the village streets with their friends and with their family in triumphal procession, likely with dancing and music, and everyone would hold out a lamp or a torch to light the way through the night to the new home where the bride and the groom would live together. At this new home, there would be waiting for them a magnificent, glorious wedding feast, a feast that was filled with joy and laughter and celebration. And this parable, therefore, tells us a similar story about the reality of human existence that Christ, our bridegroom, has promised he will come for us. Therefore, we must watch and we must wait. In this parable, Jesus tells us three different ways, three different uh, quality uh, ways that we must watch for him. If you want to be ready when the bridegroom comes, if you want to join in the celebration, if you want to be prepared for Christ's second advent, this is what your watching must be like. First, you must watch attentively. You must watch attentively. In verse 1, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. The word for virgins here is a word that refers to young unmarried people. Uh, Some translations have it as maidens or as bridesmaids perhaps. And I've done a few weddings as, as a pastor and I can confirm that it's the bridesmaids. The younger people of the wedding, they are the most pumped for the party. Most ready to dance. The groomsmen, they take some coaxing. Some encouragement, get on the floor, right? The parents are sometimes nervous to get involved. What is the electric slide? How do I do this? But once the dance floor opens, it's the bridesmaids. It's the younger people who are most ready to party. They are party goers numero uno. And so this parable opens up with these 10 party goers. They're amped. They're dressed. They got their hair did. Verse 1 says they also took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Remember, lighting the way for the bride and the groom was part of the celebration. So a lamp was just one of the accessories that you'd automatically grab if you were going to a wedding at the time. But verse 2 tells us something important about these ten partygoers right away. Five were foolish, five were wise. What separates them? What's the difference between being a wise and a foolish partygoer? Verses 3 and 4 says, The foolish ones took no oil with them. And the wise took flasks or jars of oil with their lamps. Now to us, this doesn't seem obviously foolish or wise, but in the ancient world, it would have. Lamps need oil to be lit. 
No oil means no light. No extra oil means you're carrying a useless lamp. The five who didn't bring flasks of oil for their lamps were as foolish as somebody today who brings a flashlight with no batteries. It doesn't make any sense. What are you thinking? A typical lamp back then, if it was trimmed and ready to go with oil, it might be ready to be lit for about 15 or 20 minutes. That's kind of its, its life, but that's it. Without extra oil, it'd go out in a hurry. So this, is, this would be stunning to Jesus' first listeners. How could people invited to a wedding party go with lamps and no extra oil? How on earth could the friends of the bridegroom, who, who are called to, to light the way to the party through the darkness, how on earth could they be so negligent? How could they be so inattentive, so foolish to this great privilege, this great responsibility that's been given to them? To be part of a wedding was an honor. It was a privilege and a responsibility. So for friends of the bridegroom to not be ready with lamps and oil would be unthinkable. It would be shockingly foolish. And so Jesus tells his listeners, as they watch, as they wait for his arrival, they too must watch attentively. They must not get distracted must not be slack and forget what he's called them to. They're to attentively watch for him, to be prepared for his coming. I think many in the church take a very cavalier, very lazy, very loose approach to their faith and practice. They're not attentive to either. They're not fueling their faith daily with prayer, with, with regular Bible reading, with worship. They're not interested in, in heeding what Christ has called them to in terms of radical obedience, radical generosity. They're not actively killing sin in their lives. Uh, they're not asking other people to help them fight sin in their life. They expect their faith just to always be lit, uh, even while they live distracted, unfocused lives. The shocking thing about this parable, friends, is that it's about people in the church this isn't talking about people out in the world who aren't paying attention to Christ, who are living their lives apart from. This parable's about people whom Christ has called to be part of the party, who have accepted the invitation. They've come to church. They call themselves Christians. They've got a lamp, yet they're totally inattentive to what Christ has called them to. They're like foolish partygoers who bring a lamp, but no oil. They've got an appearance of faith, but no fire, no light. No warmth. Listen, if you do not constantly attend to your faith, the faith that's been passed down to you, if you do not constantly cling to Christ who alone is your hope, if you do not keep that fire burning, if it is not your number one priority, your faith is as useless as a flashlight with no batteries. If you do not attend to Christ in every area of your life, you're carrying a useless lamp. Friends, attend to your heart this morning. Attend to your heart. Is the fire burning brightly? Are you watching and waiting attentively or with a loose cavalier approach? Listen, I'm glad that you're here. Everyone is always welcome to church, but simply being here, it does not mean a lot to me. It does not mean a lot to Christ. Christ, our bridegroom, has promised that he will come for us. Therefore, we must wait attentively. Second, we must wait and watch patiently. We must watch patiently. 
previous to this parable, in, in Matthew 24, Jesus tells his disciples that his coming will be sudden and shocking. It'll be like Noah's flood. It'll be like a thief in the night. It'll be like a master who just surprises his servants in the middle of the night with his return. So don't fall asleep, he says in Matthew 24. Stay awake. Keep watching. Could happen at any moment. Be ready. But in this parable, you see that there's a very different emphasis, isn't there? It's not, will you be ready if Jesus comes suddenly, but will you be ready if Jesus is delayed? Will you be ready if he's delayed? See, all the virgins, they fell asleep. The wise and the foolish. This was a very long time. For all of them here, there's this very real sense that this is taking a lot longer than I was expecting. Look at verse 5. It just says that, As the bridegroom was delayed, all ten virgins became drowsy, and they slept. The author Fleming Rutledge writes, The parable of the wise and foolish bridesmaids is a quintessential Advent reading. It's a clear image of the church when she lets her lights burn low. Listen to what she writes. The time of waiting is long. It is hard. It is extremely dispiriting much of the time. The kingdom of heaven, Christ's second advent, will come at a shocking moment to some, and so they must be ready. But it also comes slowly for those who watch for it. There are many distractions, friends, many ways for us to get off the path that Christ leads us on. Our faith in Christ must be built not for a sprint, but for a marathon, not for a short road, but for a long, difficult road. The time of waiting is long. It is hard. But look at verse 7. When the shout goes out announcing the bridegroom's arrival and the start of the wedding march, all the virgins got up. They all trimmed their lamps, but the foolish ones realized they were not ready. Their lamps, which did burn bright for a short time, were now out. Now the response of the wise virgins to the pleas of the foolish ones, it sounds a little selfish at first, right? Uh, The foolish ones in verse 8, they ask the wise for some of their oil. And the wise respond in verse 9, there's not enough for both of us. Go buy some for yourself. Isn't sharing a good thing? Shouldn't we be encouraged to do that? But of course, the point here that Jesus is making is that if the wise gave their oil away, there wouldn't be enough for both of them. The whole wedding party would be ruined. At some point in the triumphal procession, all of the lamps would go out and they'd be plunged into darkness. So no, everyone needs their own oil. Friends, listen, the time of waiting is long. It is hard, but only those who watch patiently, only those who endure to the end will be ready when the bridegroom comes. In my very short time here as a pastor, I've already seen people start out bright and then fizzle out in a short time. They come to church with eagerness, with excitement, with passion. They're ready to dive headfirst into following Christ. Then I don't see them again in a month or two. They get distracted. They lose their patience. Maybe there's a new, a new girlfriend, a new boyfriend. Maybe a hobby or a sport that they've taken up. There's something that's just more interesting to them than going to church, than worship. Maybe they, they, it's just been a week or two. They stopped you know, coming to church, stopped reading the word because of a very busy season with work. And then they just decide, I'm just not going to pick it up again. Maybe worse, they continue to attend with only lukewarm interest, a a rote routine 
with no love for God, no love for his people. Listen, there's a horrible scene here in verses 10 through 12, which we must not miss, where the foolish virgins, too late, find themselves on the outside of the wedding feast. Their foolishness, their impatience, their inattentiveness to what Christ has called them to results in them missing the feast forever. This dreadful sentence that the bridegroom speaks to them as they plead for him to open the doors. Look at it. Truly I say to you, I do not know you. The writer Robert Capon notes that what the bridegroom does not say is, I never called you. He does not say, I never loved you. He does not say, I never drew you to myself. He only says, I never knew you because you never bothered to know me. See, this impatience, this refusal of the foolish virgins results in what Capon calls a self-chosen invisibility. They, they just ignored the now or never urgency of faith, the once and for always finality of judgment. And they did it for things that are here today and gone tomorrow. They've missed out forever on the joy of the wedding feast for things that will pass away in a breath. Friends, you must watch patiently, endure, fight for the faith through the long, long night. Look, you're not alone. If you're suffering, if the waiting is hard and you're not sure you can keep on going, you have friends here, you have family in Christ, fellow pilgrims on this long and hard road. We'll fight with you. We'll wait with you. We'll watch with you. See, this is where we are. The church is in a period of watching and waiting for the second advent. We're called, we must watch attentively to not lose our focus, to keep our faith and our life burning brightly. We're called to watch patiently, to not be discouraged, to keep our hope fixed on Christ, who is our Savior. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, we're called to watch joyfully. We're called to watch joyfully. You must not miss this. Why does the bridegroom come? <laughs> Verse 10, he comes to bring us to a marriage feast, to a party which will end all parties. The phrase we should have on our lips as we ready ourselves for Christ's coming is not, oh no, Christ's coming with his hammer, head for the hills. It's not, hunker down, dig your holes and hide for goodness sake because the judge is coming, but rather, behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go we out with lamps ablaze and garlands round about to meet him in a rapture with a shout. That is with blissful joy, with shouts of gladness. The second advent means this. Before it means anything else, the party's about to start. It's going to be great. Won't you come? The tragedy of the five foolish virgins forgetting their oil, being left outside the doors of the feast, is just a picture of us of how utterly foolish it is to live lives apart from Christ. How completely tragic it is for people to fool around with sex and money and power for things that can't last, things that don't satisfy us and will keep us outside of the doors of the party that we are made for. This Advent season, the Advent season is the time to celebrate the two Advents of Christ. Christ's first Advent was his coming into the world to rescue a bride for himself. In Ephesians 5, Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. 
And he didn't give it to people who were, who were pure and spotless, people who deserved his arrival and his gift of himself. He came to people who were distracted, people like you and me who are disobedient. But he came so that he could wash us clean, so he could forgive us, so he could prepare us for the party. He suffered and died on the cross, experiencing the utter darkness of God's wrath so that we, we who deserve to be lost and put outside in the dark, could be given the light of Christ. And now we are in a period of watching and waiting for the second advent, where Christ comes to bring us home, to the home he has prepared for his people, to bring us into the feast, to the joy, to the laughter that will never end. Let's finish with this. Again, I referenced the, the, the poem by Christina Rossetti, Advent Sunday, and, and, and a, a, a critic of poetry noted in Rossetti's poem that there's a turn halfway through it because often Christians attend to uh, parables of judgment like this one, parables about Christ's second advent, and the conclusion they walk away from uh, with it, and, and perhaps it's something that you might, and I hope you avoid, is that the point of these parables is that avoiding judgment and entering into life is all up to us. It's up to our own efforts. It's up to our own hard work. But the point of this parable, the point of Rossetti's poem, the point of the Christian faith is not that we've come to Christ, but that Christ has come running out to us to meet us. He has sought us out before we seek him. Advent tells us that God desires us, that he wants us to be with him. Listen to what this critic writes. Advent is the season in which we make space for God's wooing rather than our self-sufficiency. Advent is a season in which we adorn ourselves as God's beloved to greet the bridegroom who comes to kiss us with his mercy and grace for us in Christ. Listen to what Rossetti says. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go we out with lamps ablaze and garlands round about to meet him in a rapture with a shout. Won't you go out and meet him? Won't you let go of everything so that you can meet him. Won't you be wise and not foolish this morning? Christ, our bridegroom, has promised he will come for us. Therefore, we must watch and wait. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask for your mercy and help in this long, dark night of our earthly pilgrimage. We thank you that you have given us light in this time, the light of Christ who is with us. Lord, would you make us ready? Would you make Christ Church ready for those who are here this morning who are not prepared, in no way ready for the call at midnight? I pray that they would make themselves ready by what Christ has given to them. Thank you that he has come to rescue us. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy on us. We pray these things in his name. Amen.